Welcome to the Unconventional Path, entrepreneurship and innovation stories and ideas. Hi, I'm Bale Abusitz, coming to you from upstate New York. I'm a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and business school professor. And coming to you from the other side of the Atlantic in Münster, Germany, I'm Mike Wasserman, professor of international management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences. Thanks for joining us today. When Bale and I were both on the faculty of Clarkson University, we would have lots of interesting conversations about how the world is changing and more specifically about how innovation and entrepreneurship are changing. We do this over coffee or lunch as time allowed. Almost two years ago, I moved to Germany and Bela retired shortly thereafter. Um, but Bela had the idea to continue these conversations in the form of a podcast and invite others to listen in. I actually thought this was a terrible idea. I'm like, I don't consider myself a podcast guy. My voice is horrible. I don't have anything interesting to say. But Bela persisted and convinced me. And as usual, he was right. Uh, we've been doing this for a year and we've been having a great time so far. So join us each week as we talk with interesting people we've met to share their stories, ideas, and insights into innovation, entrepreneurship, and the unconventional paths they have taken to find happiness in work and in life. So, Bela, tell us about this week's episode. Thanks, Mike. Before we dive into today's interview, I just wanted to remind our listeners that one of the key elements of this podcast is to interview business founders we can all identify with. We've had coffee roasters on the show, software developers, business consultants, cafe and restaurant owners. We are not trying to discuss how to start the next Facebook or Google. We want to bring stories to you that hopefully will inspire you to realize, hey, I can do that, and then take the first step to start your business journey. This week's guest is Chris Martell. He's the founder and CEO of Druthers, a small chain of successful brew pub restaurants in Saratoga, Schenectady, and Albany, New York. This week's interview with Chris is a really amazing interview, Bela, and uh, I, I think the audience is going to love it. But before we begin, let me take a second to remind our listeners that our podcast today is brought to you in part by the law firm of Phillips Lytle LLP. And Bela, this is a sponsorship that makes a ton of sense to us. You know this firm well, don't you? I sure do. I have worked with the key entrepreneurship practice partners at Phillips Lytle for over 20 years. Their nationally recognized attorneys take an entrepreneurial approach to legal matters, and they have a long history of success with startup businesses. Phillips Lytle is my go-to team for guiding startup businesses down the path to success. So we're excited to have Phillips Lytle as our show sponsor, and we both know that they think like entrepreneurs, taking a pragmatic approach to getting things done and spotting issues before they become problems. So we can gladly tell you that if you need good, solid advice starting, funding, or selling a business, whether you're a single-person startup or working on a nine-figure exit, we confidently recommend the attorneys at Phillips Lytle. Bela, what's the best way to get in touch with them? So for more information, contact Rich Honan, who is a Phillips Lytle partner. If you are old-school phone person, like Mike and I, you can give Rich a call at 518-618-1225. Or if you're of the generation that prefers online communication, you can reach Rich directly at his firm's website at phillipslytle.com. That's P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S-L-Y-T-L-E.com. And if you contact Rich, and we encourage you to do so if you, you need a good lawyer, um, it'd be great if you let Rich know that you heard about Phillips Lytle from listening to the Unconventional Path podcast. All right. 
With that said, let's jump right into today's interview with Chris Martell, the founder and CEO of Druthers. Hello, listeners. Today, I'm here with Chris Martell, who, along with his brother, founded Druthers. You might ask, what is Druthers? Well, I'm going to let Chris answer that question, but it's been a huge success. And interestingly enough, uh, Chris and I and his brother first met when they were students in my entrepreneurship class uh, about six years ago, I think. So it's been a great uh, journey and history, and uh, I think we're going to have a really good conversation today, and I know you'll enjoy it. So welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me, Bella. Yeah, sure. So, uh, Chris, if you're at a social event and uh, someone comes up to you and introduces themselves and then they ask you the question, Chris, what do you do? How do you answer that question? I usually say I work at Druthers. And they'll say, well, what do you do there? And I say uh, kind of a little bit of everything because that, that's kind of what I do. I mean, my official title is... Um, president and CEO, but that seems a little formal for the, um, the beer business. So, and really what that job entails is a little bit of everything. Um, bookkeeping, HR, uh, you know, personnel matters, legal, um, marketing, growth. I mean, you name it, it, it kind of falls under my umbrella. Yeah. So we have listeners all around the world. And so uh, people who are here in the Saratoga and Capital Region of New York State know what Druthers is, of mm-hmm. course, but the rest of yeah. the people don't. So what is Druthers? So Druthers is a, well, I guess it's a, a brewery, restaurant, or, or a brew pub. Um, when we first started out, I wanted to, uh, what I wanted to do was open a brewery. I didn't want anything to do with getting into the restaurant business because I grew up working as, uh, you know, a dishwasher, a busser, uh, uh Line, uh, wait, waiter, no management experience whatsoever, but I knew that the, the, the difficulties that came with running restaurants. But when I put the business plan together or started on it, it was very difficult going from just being a pure beer making company to find out who would be my end user and in what number would I have end users of my product. So given the financial outlay associated with starting something like that, I thought, man, you know what? People got to eat and then they certainly like to drink. So if I can combine the two in the right setting, I think I'd be in business here. Yes. So what we have is a, a brew pub restaurant, three of them now, first started in 2012 in Saratoga, opened a, a bigger production-based restaurant in uh, Albany, New York in 2015, and then added Schenectady uh, in 2018, in, in June of 2018. So that, that's kind of what it is. We've got uh, right around 250 employees right now in those three locations. Wow. Yeah. So do you brew beer in all three locations? All three. Yeah, every location. All, Albany tends to, we specialize a little bit because we've got a really big brewery system. So here we've got a 10-barrel system. In Schenectady, we've got a 10-barrel system. Albany, we've got closer to a, a 35 to 50-barrel system, just giving some design flaws that actually worked in our favor, uh, we can actually brew more beer out of that system. But we also distribute out of there, so we sell beer to other bars, restaurants in our area um, out of Albany. We have a bottling line there as well. So it's a little bit different than than the other two. Okay. So let's go back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I remember correctly from class, uh, you were a lawyer by profession (laughs) and still are. I guess you never lose that. No, no, right, right, right. Never lose that title. No. Uh, So... uh, as a, and what type of law were you practicing? Public finance. So I have a master's in tax law. So I use that in, uh, essentially, I was bond counsel. So public offerings, um, 
any type of tax exempt financing you're looking to do, hospitals, schools, universities, um, municipalities. We were, I was essentially responsible for reviewing everything, preparing documents, and then writing the opinion that would go out into the market to ensure everything was tax exempt. Right. So if you're investing in it, all the investor needs to see is, yep, they're, they're saying it. So you're writing an insurance policy all the time. And so how do you go from doing that, <laughs> mm-hmm. which sounds brutally exciting, <laughs> to, to having this dream of uh, being a, uh, uh, opening a microbrewery or a, a, yeah. a beer brewing facility? How, how to talk, walk me through that process. Okay. So I guess to, to walk you back, like at the, at the very beginning, I'm living in, in San Diego. I'm working at Enterprise Rent-A-Car. My wife works at a private school, and it's, one of, it's a very wealthy private school. I mean, it, it, you know, 20-plus thousand dollars for first grade and, and so on and so forth, great teachers. And the, the parents of these children were all, you know, as you can imagine, pretty accomplished folks. So over the course of the, the, years that she, the first few years that she's there, I would go to different parties with her, you know, school events, and you'd meet these parents. And... I, they'd ask me, if, what do you do? And I, hey, you know, I work at Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Yeah, first, first, first question I asked you. <laughs> right, right. And I work at Enterprise Rent-A-Car, and so I'd return the, the question. And they'd all, I, I tell you, the overwhelming majority of them said, I was an attorney, but now I'm a, I was an attorney, but now I'm a, and, and I'm talking golf course uh, designers, owners, hotel owners, uh, folks working in, in pure finance, uh, people working in the markets. So it, it kind of, when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I was looking at all the different options, and it seemed to me like it broke down. As, I mean, my mother was a lawyer, so and I already has, had an interest in the law, but I wanted to do criminal law. So that was always in the back of my, my mind. But it, something when, when they were telling me this stuff, I thought, geez, it, it, law school really just tells you what the law is, but it teaches you how to read and write better it, to, to get in front of people and speak. Um, so I thought, wow, I mean, there's something you can use in just about any industry you go into if you have those traits you, you can learn, you know, the subject matter and, and, and maybe excel there. So after a really difficult day at Enterprise Rent-A-Car, uh, you know, it was one of those classic, I'm, I'm working there and the lobby's full of people. I'm the only one there, you know, screaming baby. I'm working in El Cajon, California. It's like 105 degrees. I'm wearing a suit. I'm washing cars. I'm sweating through my suit. When it was all cleared up, I didn't have enough cars for the reservations there. I just go into my office and say, I need a few minutes. And I said, I'm going to law school. So I started calling around to the local law schools and say, hey, <clears throat> uh, what does it take? What do I have to do to get in there? Like, let me know. You know. So I just started, started. I bought an LSAT book on my way home and kind of like made the journey. So that was you know, a moment. That, that, was, that, that, was, a turning, the, that moment. was a turning point for me. So how did that lead to me becoming um, a, a getting involved in beer? I was a home brewer at the time. I'd been home brewing with my brothers for a while. You know, started out with a Christmas gift like many folks. You get the home brewing kit and you make some really bad beer. And then you keep repeating it. And I think we were just doing it as an excuse. Beer takes 14 to 17 days to, to mature. So we would meet every three weeks. And it would be a chance to taste what we made and make something new. But what happened is it'd just be an excuse to day drink in my garage. You know, <laughs> you know in my way, under the guise of we've got a hobby here that's, that's really yeah. important. Um, now, is this during law school or after this law school? This was after. So, I mean, okay. this was a little bit, actually, we started during, and then we, we continued to do so after. Um, but how did it really become, come from, I'm a home brewer to this? My brother was working at Lehman Brothers when, it, uh, when the market began to, to take a downturn in 2007, 2008. He called me and said, hey, I don't have any you know, student loan debt. I've got some, a little bit of savings here. I'm thinking about business school, law school. 
what do you think I should do? And I said, well, don't, I loved law school, but the practice of law is a lot different than, than the, the schooling. Um, I just suggested maybe we think about it and, and try to come up with something that we really like to do, like build something around something we like to do. So by the end of that conversation, we kind of floated the idea out there. I don't remember who said, we should just make, build our own brewery. It wasn't a brew pub, it was a brewery. And he said, yeah, right. I mean, where he was living in uh, New York at the time, getting ready to move to Florida with his now wife, because um, both of them were leaving finance. They were both at uh, Lehman. So it just kind of like we, we hung up the phone and I started kind of playing with putting a business plan together on, on what it would look like and so on and so forth. And then we touched base a couple weeks later and it turned out that he was doing a little bit of the same. And we were like, are we really going to try to do something like this? And you know, as it progressed, it just, there are certain things that happened along the way that made it like, I don't want to say destined to be, but kind of like, if you keep fighting, I, I can see it happening. You know, mm-hmm. it, it was when we finally realized we couldn't do a brewery, needed a restaurant, needed a restaurant attached to it. I he said, where do you want to put it? And I said, you know, on an outdoor, I want an outdoor location on Broadway in Saratoga. And he said, you know, bullshit, that doesn't exist. I don't know, like, you, you don't want to really, do, you just don't want to do it. And I was like, that's what we need. And <clears throat> he, you know, so maybe two weeks later, I'm walking down the street and you got a guy on a ladder out front of this building here putting up a for sale sign. And I had never really noticed, like, there's a gate here that had always been blocked off and you couldn't see. So I looked over the fence and there's this yard here. I mean, it's in terrible, overgrown. And I'm like, wait a second. I was like, does this building come with that yard? And the guy said, yeah. <laughs> it's like a vacant lot. Yeah. You know, and, and the last vacant lot on Broadway, you know, I, I mean, on like what I consider not South Broadway, but, but yeah. the heart of the city, Broadway. So we looked through it. It was listed at one point eight million and my budget was half of that, you know, and, and that's being generous. It, it was probably much less than that. I walked through with my wife like two days later through the, the main building out front here. And, uh, she said, well, you know, at least we can cross that one off our list. And I was like, yeah. hell no. We're, get, this is, we're getting this building. And if I remember from your business plan in the class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? It was, yeah. it was a building that had retail on the first floor yeah. and apartments on, on the, the, the next two. Next two floors. Next two floors, and, yeah. And you were going to buy that building. Yeah. I, mean, I sort of recall yeah. that yeah. from, from yeah. the business plan. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, the idea was to put the, the, the brew pub downstairs. Yeah, yeah. And have the apartments upstairs. Correct, correct. So we got into... So we were really looking at buildings with very little investment. I had a 401k to cash in some very little savings. I mean, I was out of law school, not quite a partner yet, massive student loan debt. Um, so the, my parents said, I, I showed them the, the, the plan that we had put together and they were our first like big investor. And, uh, I mean, that obviously like got us rolling. We could go in and say, Hey, we've got enough for a down payment or something like that. So we, we, we kind of just, proceeded along that path like we got an architect involved we, we got into a, a had a letter of intent we had a time period to, to kind of kick the tires make sure the building works got in with an architect maybe halfway in twenty thousand dollars down the hole we found out this building is not going to work for what we need to do if we put all of our equipment in there we might have had like four seats you know at the entire right, right. Place. i remember that yeah, yeah. so we were kind of you know everybody got down i woke up i went over with a tape measure and said wait a second this lot's big enough to build a new building on this. I know it's going to be a lot more money and stuff. We're going to have to get more investment, but I measured it out. We got a box. Like, we can do a box on this two-story box. So from there, it just kind of came to, I started meeting with friends, family, like people who, who might have an interest and 
got up enough investment to at least make a down payment on, we ended up buying the building and then it was on to, that was not a problem buying the building. When you come up with 25% of the cost of the building, yes. banks will be like, yeah, I'm happy to take your property back if right. it doesn't work out for you. <laughs> but building a startup restaurant in 2009 when... Uh, on a vacant lot. Uh, yeah, I mean, with no restaurant ownership experience, no professional brewer on staff. Wow. Like, I, I, I was pissed off at the time when we were going to banks. We got turned down, I think it was 16 times. Yeah. Every single bank turned yeah. us down. We ended up getting uh, SBA financing um, and no construction financing at all. But it, uh, we just kept pushing. You know, every time we, we hit an obstacle... We'd meet with new folks and raise. You know, we started out with all this equity, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then, and then sold it off. But uh, it was just the kind of thing where you just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And it got, I, I came up with a rule. Like, I'd give myself, for every major defeat, two hours to vent and scream yes. and howl and yell about the, like, how unfair everything is. And then it's like, all right, but I still got the same problem. And now you're just kind of. What do I need to do to address this stuff? Let's right. break it down into steps that I can take to make it happen. If I need more money, we'll get more money. If I need an approval, we'll get an approval. Um, but 15 public meetings in the city of Saratoga later, we had a building permit and, we, and a permanent financing commitment from NYBDC. We didn't have any construction financing. We had $250,000 in our account. And I went to our builder and said, I'm still working on getting construction financing. I need you to tell me when we get to 250. We're going to start, you know. <laughs> right. We're going to start, but, go but, but but I can't pay you above 250,000. Right. The, the builders are, <clears throat> the, the name is uh, Munter Enterprises, John and Mike Munter. We're sitting down at Uncommon Grounds, and they, like two days later, and they say, hey, you've got your permanent financing. We'll carry you. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll float you until you, we get done with this project. And it was like, you know, you go into construction, it's new, but there are always chances. I mean, overages in construction are, I mean, it's like, it's almost a sure thing right. that, that it's gonna, right. going to happen. So my permanent financing was Both for a certain amount. dollars. Yeah, right, right, right. right. It, it's just, so they were to make, taking a, a major uh, risk. Risk, you know, to, I mean, it, and it's, it's stuff like that, though. I, I found that if you were just, like, you know, it, it would take me four hours to tell you all the different things that happened that looked like we were done. And then we got over it right. by just being, I don't want to say like being upfront, explaining the vision to people. And, and if they were in a position to help us, I mean, I do have to just say this really happened. We, we ended up getting this building for $960,000. When towards the end of our, the, the end of our diligence period where we're, the kicking tires period is about to end, I still don't have a commitment letter to buy. The, this was owned at the time by an estate and you had beneficiaries that, you know, given the time, everybody could use the extra cash sure. coming in. A cash offer came in for $100,000 more than I was offering. I didn't have a commitment letter at the time. No ba like there were, I had no written evidence other than, no written evidence. Wow. It was only my word wow. that I can buy this property. <clears throat> I, told, I called him and said, this is the situation. He told me about the offer and he went to his family and kind of, told them, like I'd been meeting with him maybe once every two weeks, and told him the situation. And this family actually voted to go with us for the lesser amount. I mean, just, I mean, think versus, about that. Versus a cash deal. Versus a cash deal that could close within seven days, no contingencies. I had nothing. I mean, I'm just saying, like, if you think about like, how the universe, like, 
like works and like the vibrations and, and, and moving forward. But it, it was events like that that made it like possible for us to actually open and be here today. Right. It, 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 like unexplained. I, I, I can't even imagine. I don't know if I would do the same thing. I mean, I, I want to say I would, you know, to, to see a young guy. But you're going to leave $100,000 on the table with a guy that. Right. Got cash. It, 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 right. And I have nothing. Right. <laughs> hey, I, I can give you like a, a very modest down payment. It, yeah. It's uh, it, it was just that's stuff like that. That's remarkable. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I think that there's two comments I'll make. One is that uh, somebody once, somebody much smarter than me once said, you know, it's amazing how lucky I am when I'm well prepared. Mm. And I remember that from you being in class. Yeah. Right. You, yeah. you and your brother, you, you guys distinguished yourself from other people that were in the mm. class. Yeah. And I think you've distinguished yourself from other people that all your friends and acquaintances run into yeah, yeah. by your sort of, I think, transparency. Yeah. Right? You're transparent. Hey, here's the deal. I, right. I'm, I'm not, I'm <laughs> not trying to swindle you. Yeah, right? yeah. This is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Right? And, and your, your never-dying perseverance and desire to keep progressing forward. Yeah. Right? And I think when people see that, I think that's when they see a real leader mm. and, and, and they're willing to to be part of that. As a matter of fact, they want to be part of that. Right, right, right. Right? Because they they see that, hey, this person's going to, at some point in time, here's a funny story, right? Yeah. I always always have said this in the past. Every once in a while, I meet somebody, and and you're in this pile where I said to myself, there's going to be a point in time when I'm going to be proud to say, (laughs) I knew Chris when he was just a student in my class. Sure. Right? And I have yeah. said that a bunch of times. Right? Yeah. People talk about druthers, and I said, "Yeah, those two yeah. brothers were in my class. Right. They did a right. business plan for right. the for the whole thing." Yeah, right. Yeah. Because I, I could tell then. Right? There's something different. Yeah. And I think that's that's one of the traits of a true entrepreneur. Yeah. Right. It, it, it's it's bad stuff's going to happen. Bad stuff happens to everybody. Right. But you, you take your two hours, you vent, and then you take the next step forward. Right. What do I need to do now? Do you do you think it's if I'm thinking of the people in the class, I think you had a lot of smart folks in the class. Do you think it's a difference between mine wasn't fiction to me? You know what I'm saying? Yours, like, is, yours is real. Right, right. You know what I mean? Right. So it, so I can, like, it, it's really happening. You know what I mean? So, so it, it, it's like, when you, I mean, you've dealt with a lot of entrepreneurs. I mean, it, it's, uh, and most of them have, they're in some stage of, of making it happen, right? Um, I always wonder. I mean, you always wonder, am I cut out for, I mean, because we've got three places, and now as we look to grow bigger, is there something, like, you know, you have those moments of doubt, like, am I in over my head here, or, or, or is this, I you think, know what I mean? I think, I think we're always in over yeah. our head. <laughs> you're probably right. And the question is, when you're in over your head, yeah. what do you do about it? Yeah, right, 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 right. And, and, yeah. I, and I will say, there's a lot of people who want to start businesses. Mm. Yeah. There's very few that actually take that first step. Right. So I run into a lot of people who want to start this yeah. business, want to start that business. Yeah. And, and they have their long list of business ideas. Yeah. And a notebook that they keep. <laughs> right. And they, and they say, I don't know which one to do. I don't know which one to do. I said, it doesn't matter. Just do one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you will learn so much more by actually doing. Yeah, I know. Than you ever will. I know. By studying more. <laughs> You're right. right? Yeah, there's no question. Yeah. There's so no you question. guys started the the first one here. Yep. You, you built the building. Yeah. Right. You started the first one. Mm-hmm. When when did you when was your opening? August first, twenty twelve. And for people who aren't from Saratoga, um, August is the busiest month 
of of the year. It, it you know you've got a local population of about thirty five thousand that probably balloons to a couple hundred thousand uh, during those times, and and that's a, because of the racetrack. Because of the racetrack, yep. right? Um, and it is so. We opened on August first, twenty twelve. We went from serving sixty to seventy people at a friends and family soft opening, which we did a few of, but it was very tame. Uh, to the gates are open, and we had a line out front. And I can tell you, at maybe like eight o'clock at night, I, I went walked by my wife, and she said it was so crowded that you couldn't like you couldn't move, you couldn't hit. It was just chaos. You know, it was our first time doing it, and. Uh, She's like, when do we close? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, hopefully right now. You know, I mean, I forgot like how nice, like the, the quiet and the, the calm and everything. And, you know, I think we served 1,300 people. The first, I mean, that's dinners. Just, I mean, not like selling beers, but just individual people yes. sitting down. And uh, it was just completely like overwhelming. And, and uh, we really learned a lot. I mean, we were so busy that first month. And, and it's not, it's kind of a, a, it's just as much our location as it was because we didn't have a reputation or anything like that. But we were the only brew pub in town at a time where brew pubs were somewhat. Fashionable. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. right. And, and to, they, they weren't like on, in every community like they are now. Um, right, they were, they, were, they were up and coming. Yeah. And, and everyone wanted to check them out. Right, but right. There wasn't one on every corner. No, right, right, right. And, and, it's, and we're in the smack dab in the middle of Broadway with, yeah. out with plenty of outdoor seating. Um, so. We were just mobbed the entire time. We had to start closing our kitchen. We couldn't serve food from two to five because we had to reload everything. All the pre- we couldn't possibly do enough prep to get ready. So it, it was certainly like very difficult those first few, <laughs> the first few months. Yeah. You know. So um, you really had no real restaurant experience. No, other than being a a, a your cog. Bro- your brother didn't. No, just you know. your wife didn't. Nope. So, what type of talent? You know, so you you have you have to find talented mm-hmm. people and yeah. rely on them to do certain things. Right, right. Someone to run the kitchen, someone yeah. to run the waitstaff, yeah. someone to run the bar, whatever yeah. order, yeah. right? All yeah. that kind of yeah. stuff. So, talk about finding that talent. How do you convince somebody to yeah. to leave another job to come <clears> to this new place? Yeah, well, this is a, so. We needed three main people for the restaurant. We needed a, a, a brewer. We were home brewers. So we started working with George DePiro at the pump station, and he was essentially we started out. He's our consultant; like he's refining some of what we do, and, and so on and so forth. And it turned out that the amount that he knew compared to the amount that that we knew. I mean, he, he's a, a, a chemist, you know. I mean, he, he worked for pharmaceutical companies before he started brewing. He was so knowing why something happens is different than saying that happened. <laughs> you know, maybe if I don't do this anymore, it won't happen. So. We decided midway through the process, hey, you know, is this something you'd be interested in? And, and he had some money of his own, wanted to invest, wanted to be part of it. So we, we, George, instead of being a consultant, joined us. So that took care of one major headache. I tried his beers throughout the years. Um, he's a very accomplished brewer. We knew he'd have good, good, a, a good product. And you brought him in as an owner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, an yeah, he's an, yeah, yeah, he's an investor as well. Um, then for the kitchen... Kitchen's the hardest part because we were delayed by, I don't know, a year, year and a half or something. And you start out with one person. They're like, I need a job. Yeah, no, no question. You do. Um, one of my law partners at, at Hodgson Russ, Bill Comiskey, come, comes into my office. Like, hey, I heard you're going to start a restaurant. My son's a chef. He's in Washington, D.C. right now. But he's, I'm really trying to get him to move back here. So we meet. 
so I, I, he set up a meeting and I meet Sean Comiskey and it was really, he had heard so many pitches from different restaurant folks that he was just going in there. He told me, he took it as a courtesy to his father and it was just going to be a, yeah, well, okay, dude, like whatever, you know, you save your money. Honestly, like it would be the, the best thing you've ever done. So we sit down and every time I make a point, he's trying to make a counterpoint and trying to like, but by the end of it, we had struck up a real bond and we were, we were like, Hey, let's, let's continue the conversation. So ultimately we ended up with Sean and, and Sean was like, really put us on the map. The guy was a nonstop, like workaholic, just into making like really good comfort food. Like he would actually take the laws of like, like, you know, what you think you should never eat. And he'd like double up on it. And, uh-huh. and you just like with Mac and cheese and stuff like that. And, um, and then with a the restaurant manager, we just kind of like, who do we know that, that we think does it really well, you know, and, and just approach the person. They, they were in a, a different gig at the time, but it, it's really just like you said. I mean, it, it's weird about um, you were saying something about the, like what an entrepreneur is and, and stuff like that and, and learning by doing. And if you find someone with a personality for it who, who people will say, hey, this guy's got his act together, or even if he doesn't, he's got great energy yes. and he wants to lead. We were looking for somebody like that. We found that. And together, like he and my wife kind of like did all of our interviewing for the wait staff and they, they were picking, they were having like a good time with it. And there was the energy we had here in our first year, in, in our first couple years was kind of like, um, like the, the underdog, like almost like the Hoosiers, you yes. know, like, like that yes. movie where, where you've got everybody like the established restaurant industry around you is kind of said no these guys i mean once the summer's over it's gonna you know no way they're gonna make it you know right, we'll right, see what right, happens right. Then. anybody can yeah who can do that yeah so we just had this kind of um camaraderie where we just got into nobody would walk back to the kitchen empty-handed you know it's like it's not my table i don't care i'm gonna clear your entire table you get back you get mine when i'm and it just like i don't want to say that we weren't like super like strict with management but it's almost like we had people believing in like the overall mission. Like yes. we had great Halloween parties. Yeah. We did Mac and cheese bowls. We did a bunch of stuff with not for profits. And it was like, you had people volunteering, not like how much am I going to get, get paid? I, I'm giving up a shift here. How much right. it was right. like, I, this is awesome. Like, I mean, this is fun to be a part of. Um, so that's kind of how we built the first trailer. And I guess, you know, moving forward, I was naive to think that we're going to have the same energy because, you know, in our, the chit chatting we were doing before this, I said, you start off with all of your resources and a hundred percent of your best people in one place. And then you open the second one. Now you're 50, 50, you open a third and you're 33 and a third. How do you do everything? How do you, because it took all of those people to make the culture at the first place. <laughs> right. How do you now, scale? And now you got half. And that to me is the hardest thing to make it more than, right. you know, so you lose a little bit of the romanticism of, the idea that you're starting something out and it's a family type thing and yeah, it, it, it's very it's tough. And the restaurant <clears throat> business is very people intensive. Oh my right? god! Right, so scaling yeah. is not buying more machines. No, it's no. hiring more people. It is. It and is. And getting yep. that culture. So, uh, you have three locations now. Yes. And so, so talk about some of the big challenges you came across moving from one to let's say when you went from one location to two. Yeah, it was. Uh, let's see. The biggest thing. And it's been more the two to three, but one to two wasn't as bad because 
we had a number of people in mind for management positions who worked in Saratoga. So when we opened Albany, we kind of just had those folks go from Saratoga to Albany. It was a nice growth opportunity. It, right, right. So folks. it was like, I'm doing this. I, I've got an interest in management. Perfect. You know, we're opening another shop. I think you'd be great for it. So we, we do something like that. And, and it was just, it, instead of checking on one place and seeing how the food is, but what gets tough is we were doing at the time three menus a year per place, and they were different menus at each place. And so we'd have these brainstorming sessions. But And this occurred to me recently when we opened a third and went to one menu, uh, three different menus, but they're all the same for three different locations. Um, We were brainstorming. We'd come up with these great ideas, but maybe we'd put down on paper 50 ideas. And you think to yourself, okay, there's the best idea is number one. The worst idea is number 50. Somebody's getting the 50th best idea, you know, as part of their, because we add about 20-something items per menu. We'll, we'll flip it over. And that's probably not the best, you know what I mean? If 50 barely made the cut or even 60, it's right. like, why are we giving that to those, you know, who comes out with the last well, menu? It's you, like the you know? law student who graduated at the bottom <laughs> of the class. <laughs> I know. It, it, it's, uh, so you, you look at it and you just think, we're, we're not doing things like, this isn't right. Like it used to be that we'd put 50 down on paper and take the top 20. Yes. You know, and, and you'd say, yeah. okay, yeah. you know, now we've, we've got something. But it's hard to come up with this many ideas. And then, you know, if, if you think about, and I'm, this happened recently, but I read something, and I don't want to get this, the, the, the names wrong, but I think it was, uh, was Popeye's with their fried chicken sandwich. They, they came out and went viral. I want to say that, that I, I heard that it took like a year in order to get like that tested, that sourced, the recipe perfect, and then distributed around. Now think about us doing that with 20 different items across, you know, I mean, just one, even one restaurant. Like we did 20 restaurants and we'd turn it over in two weeks. And you think there's gonna be problems with that. And so what we got into the habit of doing, what, what it seemed like was happening with us, is we, each menu lasts about 90 days, 90 to 100 days. We take the first 30 days fine-tuning. So for the first 30 days, you're getting something that we didn't think was the best that we could do it. So by the time we really got the hang of it, new menu time, that's leaving, you know? Yeah, yeah. So talk to me yeah. about this, uh, this drive. For, I don't know much about the restaurant business yeah. at all, yeah. but <clears throat> you're, turning, you're turning the menu over every 90 days. Mm-hmm. What, what's sort of the motivation for that? I... <laughs> I think that we, it's, I don't want to get stale. Mm. And, and so I, I like people to try new things. I mean, we keep a lot of the favorites on there. So if we've got 50 items on, 30 stay, 20 change. Um, so is it like the, the low volume ones you're sort of taking yeah, off we, pretty we, much? We, well, we actually take off some really high volume ones too. It just depends on a lot of the things are seasonal, oh, okay, you know, sure. that, that, yeah, that yeah, we'll put seasonal. on. Yeah, that makes um, sense. You know, and, and certainly there's a, a lot of difference between January and, and July. Um, here. It's also how busy our kitchens get. Schenectady and Saratoga have outdoor locations and long lead items do not work in these in these locations. So it's uh, we kind of just got into flipping the menu to and I also didn't want our people to become like robots. Like I would want you know I think it was a Gladwell book that I was reading about complexity, autonomy and there being some relationship between what you're doing and the amount of money you make. You know a chance for advancement. If you come in and, and really nail your station and it's always the same day after day, how long are you going to want to do that? Right. I, I, I don't, right. I mean, for me, you know, not long. 
So yeah, so I know yeah. that's good. I never yeah. I never thought of it that way, right? So it, it's part of it for for the folks who work here, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, to sort yeah. of give them new challenges, right. and and that's the kind of people you want here. It is, yeah, it is, and and I also thought if these people want to open their own restaurant one day, which you know if, if that's fine, you're you're a line cook, you're a great line cook. I would imagine at one point you want to do this on your own. Sure. I mean, the the bar to opening a restaurant is pretty low. You know, I mean, so you could potentially like do this on your own. And I thought, hey, if you give these folks the opportunity to not only create menu items, but learn about the proper way to cost an item and so on and so forth, put it on the menu and see how it does, put specials out. I thought we're giving these folks tools to, to go on and do their own thing. Yeah. yeah. So how do you uh, <clears throat> how do you sort of scope out your competition? I don't really. Um, we are I'm very critical of our operation, probably overly critical, almost to the point where it's, if someone says, hey, I had a great meal at Druthers, I'm thinking, well, they know that I am involved with Druthers, so they're telling me that I had a great meal at Druthers. I mean, how many bad, because I get the void report every night. I find out what we missed on, and we really go around to customers and try to find out, like, if, if somebody doesn't eat something, you know, it's, it, they're sending obvious, like, signals that this isn't that good. So we'll get it out of them. You know, if you ask, how was everything? Oh, it was good. You know, do you want to take it home? Nope. <laughs> it's like, all right, well, you didn't let, we're not going to. So I, I say to my people all the time, our menu is like a contract. Okay. So we're offering you the best version of what we put on in print right there. You're accepting the best version of that. Okay. Now the problem is, is it's not clear as to my best vi- version of that could be completely different than yours, but we're going to go in your favor anyway. Even though we didn't specifically write out the, the exact scope of what it is you think you're getting, we described it in a way that, that made you want to order it, and we're going to do that. And if we don't meet our end of the bargain, you're not going to pay for it. So that, that's the, if we do that, then I should get every void and find out what we're doing wrong. So, so uh, yeah, you used we, the we, word void. I don't, what does oh, that so mean? So void, it just means, so if I come up to you and say, you didn't like the mac and cheese? Uh, you know, it was okay. Hey, you know what? It's on us. Can we get you something else? Or, hey, we'll get you next time, or we'll give you a gift card. Whatever, whatever it might be. So scoping out the competition, I don't... And you do that, just to be clear, you do that proactively. Yeah, we do. J- just because... It's not because, it's not yeah. because I, I want to see the manager. No, 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 no. <laughs> right? No, I mean, no, sometimes, yeah, no. Right? Yeah, sometimes, sometimes it's that it, way. I, 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 I grew up in a restaurant like that. I mean, I, yeah. I worked in where if you brought something back to the kitchen, you're shielding your face from something getting thrown at you. You know, I mean, it, this is... They say it's not medium rare. Bullshit, it's not medium rare. It's like, right. it, are you going to have an argument about if it's medium rare? Like, it just makes no sense. You know? I, I yeah. mean, so, so that's the void report that you meant. Okay. Exactly. So when I say I don't scope out the competition, um, I eat around town all the time. One, I like to support the folks, but, uh, and people do a lot of different stuff than we do. But I don't ever like, go to a place and be like, they're doing this. We need to do this. Like, I, I just got back from, from Nashville. And uh, I did go there to a few great restaurants. And it just, it inspires you to, hey, I know how, I mean, I love the way they did this. I love the way that it made me feel. Um, Boy, remember when we used to do this? Like all that kind of stuff, like you go through and and you make, if you're not always, I guess my, the bottom line is without dragging this out is we try to self improve all the time and if you find yourself being reactive to people in the area, you're too late. And, and so if you're not always trying to make yourself better, and, and that's the beauty of having three places, and we've been pretty successful uh, w- w- with the, the places we have, 
and it allows us to invest back into it. it if I'm going to give one bit of advice to anyone out there, the capital that you open with needs to be almost like twice what you think. I mean, it, it legitimately needs to, you can't ever think, I can't afford to do that. You know, unless we're talking about a major capital improvement, but boy, if you're thinking cloth napkins are, are, are out of your reach, or if you're th- like that, I can't pay people the going rate, or I can't afford a good dishwasher, I, I think you're, you're behind the eight ball a little bit. So it, it's having that capital and reinvesting and doing what you think is going to make your restaurant better without regard to what somebody else is trying to do. Um, so that, that's why I don't really focus too much on competition. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you have three locations now. Yep. And, and sort of what do you see on the horizon? Um, I think we, we, we are interested in, in, well, let me go back. We're interested in opening new locations. I think what we have here can be and sometimes is a special offering. I think we combine really good beer with great ambience. Um, we have a good culture with our employees. I think our food can be fantastic when done consistently correct as as it was intended um so i i see us starting to open new locations the 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 beer distribution market which we're in right now is a bit saturated i mean if you go to your your local beverage store it's i mean unless you i don't even know it's almost turned into wine you know when you go to the wine store you you ask the guy hey you know the stuff that you bought isn't there anymore and you're kind of like oh, what year was that anyway i don't really <laughs> right. know i don't remember the right. name can you recommend something i think i kind of liked something in this area it's the same with beer. there are so many beers and so many new styles and varieties and so on and so forth that there isn't much like loyalty except in your your local market so the idea of like us going out of our local market and, and building a new infrastructure to support distribution and even regionally like super regionally that doesn't interest me that and the, the way it were if people are wondering why craft beer is so expensive and stuff um when i sell a glass a, a, a pint of beer here i make almost the same amount as when i sell a case of beer to at by at the store you know to a third in a third party distribution scenario the, dis- the distributor's got to get paid, and then the retailer's got to get paid. So I'm at the first part of that, and all I want to do is push down my margins. And so I'm just thankful that when I, we got into this that we weren't like, we're going to knock it dead and this yeah. and that. Yeah. I've always been very careful to be able to, like, who is doing this right now? What do they have invested? And do I think that I can, can copy that in, in some fashion? And when I can't do that, I don't do that. Yeah. I don't, I don't yeah. think that you, you mentioned when we started out about Mark Zuckerberg and, and anomalies. There are anomalies out there in the market. And if you think that you're one of them, I just would ask that you, you put down on paper what makes you different than other people. And yeah. don't be subjective and say, my beer's better. Because right. <laughs> you might be the only person who agrees with that. Right. You know, there, there's a wide range. I've had beers that we make here that I'm like, awful, awful beer. I don't like smoked beers, but people come in and they're like, you took the smoke. It's like, what? You know, I just made the argument that we shouldn't have that anymore. So it's that kind of thing. Um, it, it, so what, what I, I think we're going to stick to the restaurant game. And I think we're really going to try to fine tune our approach to make sure we've got a more the consistency is what I would love. Yeah. Across the locations, like consistently great food, nothing would make me happier. I'll turn the people lo- on the, the brewery. We make good beer. You know, it, that's just a subjective thing. Um, whether or not you like it, you might prefer others, 
but when you come here, we'll have a beer for you. Yeah, I mean, there'll be yeah. something that you that you can wrap your arms around. But if the food's good, I said this to our people the other night, and I, our brewer wouldn't doesn't wouldn't like this, doesn't like this. But when someone says to their significant other, partner, friend, whatever, what do you want to do tonight? It usually breaks into after a certain age when you're not going out to just drink. Um, you know, what are you in the mood for tonight? They're talking about food. Yes. And the market has turned into, it used to be that you couldn't find a good beer at most places. That's no longer true. Now you can find a good beer every place. That, that's really insightful because, yeah. the, you know, I never thought of it that way. Yeah. But the light just went off in my head. You're exactly right. right. So we it, think about what do we want to eat. Right. Because we know there'll be a good beer there. Right. You used to say, let's go to the brew pub because, God, if I go to these other places, I might be drinking... You know, and, and plenty of folks like it, but a, a domestic that I, I, and I'm in the mood for something else. Right. Now it's, you know, that there are very few places that don't have great beer on. If you're in the market right now making craft beer and you've got like a, you, a reputation of following, you're making good beer. I mean, there's not a big difference between beer. Like, I mean, everybody's using the same ingredient. As long as you're not adding like a bunch of extracts and all this kind right. of stuff to it, everyone makes a pretty quality beer. So the, the, I can't tell you the last time I went out to eat and couldn't find a really good beer to drink. I, I can't tell you the last time I went out and couldn't find a decent wine to drink right. you know, at, at a place. So it, it's, if you don't have the food, the best advice I've ever gotten about getting into the, the, the brew pub game are from the, the folks who own Carl Strauss in San Diego. They told me, the folks come for the beer, they come back for the food. Mm-hmm. Never forget that. And this is a brew-centric brew pub, I mean, with, yeah. with five or six locations. But if you're not nailing the food... No one gives a shit about your beer. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> so if, uh, if someone, your phone rings mm-hmm. and some guy says, hey, I was at your restaurant. I was out the racetrack this summer. I stopped by your place yeah. a couple times. I'm from St. Louis. I want to open up one of these druthers in St. Louis. What do you, what's your response? Oh, to a, franchi- to a franchise like type option. Yeah. So um, somebody wants to, to, to copy, you know, to franchise, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe not franchise in the legal sense. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. You know. um, that would be really hard because it, it would be hard because I know like all the nitty gritty that, that goes into making one of these run. And it's like as simple as getting up when it, when it snows and coming in here and shoveling you know, because we don't have heated patio or yeah. sidewalks. And it, it's just a little things that you, you, you the extra steps you take. What, what did I read? I read a book and it kind of put everything in perspective for me. And it was all about how even if you're not running a franchise or you don't intend to franchise, um, you should set everything up as if it's a franchise. Meaning when your folks, you hire someone for a busing position, they've got a busser's manual that's short, sweet, uh, gets to the point and you can quiz them on it and yes. the, the, the line cooks know your, your, all of your processes are repeatable and so on and so forth and you know that the least the least talented among us can do just about every job um, I don't have a system that I could give the, the, the this hypothetical caller from St. Louis so until I have something like that I'd say no because I've spent eight years doing this now yeah, yeah. and I still don't have, <laughs> I still don't have it hundred percent or even 90%. And it know? changes. It does. Yeah. Right, it's not know? the same. No. And the, the, the markets, it, it's just, it, it's one of the crazy, like when there's no, when, when there's a very low bar to entry in the market and, and restaurants have that shiny new apple thing. That's right. You it's open easy. a new the first three months is great. And you open a new restaurant 
and it's like all of your customers, you know, if, if you think about eating out, it's, it's a habit for people. They've got the places in there, you know, they've got four or five that they go to. I got my normal rotation. Exactly, right? And, and so to get someone out of the rotation, the shiny new apple might have happened for you. Say, I'm going to go try that new place. And that place is going to be something like, hey, is it enough to take that guy out of my rotation? So your number five rotation, your once a month or your once every eight weeks. Right. I mean, did that guy unseat? Right. So that's what you've got all the time. And, and, you're ch- and, and as you get older and, and your taste change as well. So it's not, you know, what, what <coughs> a packed house used to be great. Because I'm not really changing the number of times I eat nope. out per month. Nope. Right, you're that's almost a, almost a fixed number. Yeah, you're staying the same. So if I'm going to some other place, <laughs> yeah. that means I'm not going someplace else. Right, and think about it. When you were younger, you used to eat out a lot more. I, I mean, I, I mean that was that's my yeah. that was my experience. Um, so you've got this. You're always like fighting this thing where you've got established customers are getting older. Now we're seven years in. They're having children. You can't go out as much, which you know because these were the, the right. people in their late twenties. <laughs> right. Now all of a sudden they're dropping off, and the, the, the folks coming up, when they, they aren't really the beer drinkers that, that like the generation before them, now they drink spike seltzer and all, all this other stuff. And they, they, so how do you appeal to them? They, they, they might be a little bit more health conscious. So you're always battling like, all right, so my once a week or just went to a once every two weeks with, with the kids or once every three weeks, how do I replace that guy with that? You know, so you're always like thinking, what do I do to appeal to, yeah. to, to a different demographic? Yeah. Yep. So we're approaching 45 minutes yeah. here. So I want to wrap this up. Yeah. I, have, I have two two last questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you reflect back on uh, on this whole journey, mm-hmm. what were the two or three sort of biggest surprises to you? Let's see. Two or three biggest surprises. Um. When I first started out, I thought that we could do it different than, than everyone else. And I mean, I, I kind of was romanticizing the industry and thought, if we provide upward mobility and a great wage and retirement benefits and health care and the entire thing, I'm going to grow old with these people. And it's just not, uh, it, it's not as easy as that. You know, it, it's, um, this is not a traditional it's not a traditional, like, not workplace, but industry. I mean, it's very transitory. Um, you can take your skills and move across the country and have a job that day doing it for the same exact wage. It's just a different, and once you get used to, you know how it is, you get used to living on a certain wage, you live at that wage, and you can take that anywhere if you're making the same exact wage. Right, right. Um, that was, so that was a real uh, eye-opening thing. The regulatory framework that we find ourselves in with the state liquor authority, the Department of Health. Depart- I mean, the Liquor Authority, the Department of Health. Yeah. I, I never knew so much was put on the employer. Um, garnishing wages for child support is the job of the, 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 the employer. And they'll send an update for someone every week, every other week. And, and it's just like, wow, like this is all on us. The healthcare thing, tracking hours and seeing if people qualify and making sure that they sign up. It, it's just, wow, like this is... Like quickly, as soon as you get to become like a real company size, or which is uh, I guess over fifty full time employees, it's like, hey, you, you, need, know, a full, you need a full time person doing you, that. Oh, we do. Yeah, we have two. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's like I didn't think about that. So, um, 
That's an ex so what you're saying is that's an expense that was not in your spreadsheet no, that you handed in in no, class. No, no. I mean, for the first few years, it was me doing all of that, you know? And, and it's yeah. like, you know, and it doesn't give you time. And, and, and then I guess the third thing is I grew up kind of a little bit blue collar, like salt of the earth. I mean, I went to, to, to law school and stuff, but I, it's hard to associate the entrepreneur, I think, is best when they've got enough time to consider, like, kind of like kick back, so you'd almost look like you're not working, you're thinking, like you need thinking time. Like, how am I gonna make things better, this and that? And it doesn't look like, so if you were videotaping me, and then you videotape one of our line cooks, you might say, man, I'd much rather have that line cook. You know, but the line cook might not be, you know what I mean, but the value at the end, but convincing myself that, I'm doing, you know, th this is okay to not be a hands-on, like that there are better ways to spend my time than the, the, the manual labor portion yes. of, of, of the work. And I think that that's, I get, it's the joke about the foreman on the job site, you know, no one knows the pressure the foreman's under because like they actually have to deliver. If, if, if the whistle blows and everybody leaves at three o'clock and the houses aren't framed, they'll be back to work tomorrow. The foreman right. might not. That's right. You know, and, and so right. a lot of people look at the foreman as some lazy guy who sits in a truck looking at plans, but it's, there's a lot of pressure on that, especially on that, that foreman that, that people don't see. And it took me a while to get to the point where I, I thought, this is a good use of my time. I've hired the right people to do the things, you know, that, that, that weren't as good a use of my time. So, and that's a, and that's a, <clears throat> that's a transition that oftentimes is difficult for yeah. founders or entrepreneurs to make as it they is. grow. Yeah. You know, yeah. their job changes drastically oh, I because know. Yeah. they might have been cooking in the kitchen. Right, right. Right? A little bit of everything. Now they're not doing that anymore. No, there's a little bit of everything so, before. Yeah. Uh, but there's still someone cooking in the kitchen. <laughs> there is, yeah. So, yeah. all right, last question. Yeah. So, um, if there's a, you know, there's entrepreneurs tend to listen to this, this podcast, um, what words of advice would you have for them? Not just folks in the restaurant who yeah. want to get into the brew pub or the, you know, uh, a restaurant business, uh, but just overall in general. Overall, in general, I think I, I'd, I'd go back to being transparent with people. Um, I probably, to a fault, try to err on the side of, of someone else's side. Try to be, a, I, I, and I try to really self-reflect and be objective in, in dealing with everyone. But at the same time, if you are starting a business and it's not technology base where you're going to get paid based on what something might be worth down the road and you're getting that money up front I would say just really really be be tight with your costs because no you don't go out of business if you can still pay the bills and your people but otherwise you do and, and it's just if you just wait or you just you, I find that if you want it bad enough it might not take the form that you wanted at first but you can work into that form just if you make sure that you're, you just can't run out of, of money. And, and the people who I see do that are overly optimistic about their revenue possibilities and, and very optimistic about how low their expenses are, are, are going right. to be. They're always hidden costs. So that, that's what I would say has kept me alive in this game. Yeah. Well, great. Yep. That's great advice, Chris. Thank you very much for being a guest on, on the podcast. Uh, you were a great, great guest with some really good words of uh, wisdom and advice. Thank you very much for being here. My pleasure. 
Hey, Mike, uh, what were some of the key points that uh, you really thought were uh, important in this interview with Chris Martel? Well, I love the journey, right? Um, working for Enterprise, right? A lot of my former students have done that. They have a really cool training program, but it's a tough job, right? And then this kind of, okay, maybe I'll go to law school, bad day at the office. You know, they had the reservations, but they couldn't keep the reservations, right? And he's like, I'm out, right? And there he goes to law school. And explaining how law school was the springboard for many people's careers, not to be lawyers, right? But to be a lawyer for a while and then do something else was great. I've had I think at least four or five friends that have done the same thing. They started as lawyers um, and wound up doing something else, right, uh, after they lawyered for a while. Um, but it does it. It's a, a career tool that teaches you how to read, how to write, how to think, how to present. And these are just great skills to be a human, right, and to give you success in a variety of fields. And, geez, you know, the guy is still well-read. How many books did he quote? And, you know, you talk to him for 40 minutes, and he brought in all kinds of really cool quotes from books. So he's still clearly a reader and a thinker, uh, as well as a, as a brew pub owner. Yeah, so I think one of the takeaways here is that, is that certainly for Chris— uh, going to law school gave him a wonderful, wonderful foundation uh, and confidence to be able to do all sorts of things. Because if you think about it, he, other than having worked in a restaurant a little bit, he really didn't know much about the restaurant business. And, uh, you know, he dove right in. And it and it's not like, uh, you know, when someone started Facebook, uh, there wasn't other things to model it after. Um, so here's a lot of restaurants. A lot of competition. It's a crowded space uh, where he opened his first restaurant in Saratoga, New York, Saratoga Springs, New York. Man, there's a lot of restaurants there. There's a lot of good restaurants there. So he dove right in. Uh, he was really persistent. He certainly had a lot of uh, uh, confidence in his ability to succeed. And uh, I love the way that he was really pragmatic about uh, the, the path here and the journey. Um, and I, I loved when he said, you know what? Things wouldn't go well. Uh, I'd go into a quiet corner for two hours. I'd vent. And then I'd come out and say, okay, now what are we going to do? How are we going to recover from this? How are we going to move forward? And he certainly has had a lot of roadblock, roadblocks along the way. It's, it's not one, it has not been a smooth journey from the various different uh, uh, things that have happened. And, you know, I think the thing that spoke the greatest about uh, Chris and his leadership and, and the way folks really uh, are willing to stand behind him is when he talked about buying the building and how the building owner had a cash offer for more money, but they took Chris's offer, which was for less money and was contingent upon getting a loan. So that really shows you that as an individual, Chris has that, that special um, thing about him that people like him, they identify with him, they want to see him succeed, they have confidence in him, and, and, and they want to get behind him and help him build a successful business. Yeah, he had vision and purpose. And my hunch just from listening to him, he's a great communicator. And again, I think law school brings this out in people. But, you know, my sense is, is that he could really sell people on what he was trying to do. And people bought into that. Right. And they he built that trust. And I think that was a, a pretty cool takeaway from this, that 
get a team, get people on board. You know, he was willing to dilute his ownership. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are afraid to dilute ownership and afraid to give control. And he's like, hey, I need this guy who's going to help me brew. I'm happy to give him a piece of the action in order to get him bought in. And I think that it's not only saying the right things, but it's doing the right things that will help you build a, a superstar team. Yeah, uh, he's, he's really an amazing individual uh, who has has gotten into this business and in a few short years uh, has established a great brand. Uh, it's one of the best known and loved restaurants in the region. He's opened up three, three of them. Uh, and, you know, uh, that that, too, is is sort of a challenge. And we talked about that a little bit. Right. You have one location. All your employees are there. That's where you go every day. Everything happens in that one place. And now you have another location and, you know, it's a 40 minute drive away. And now half of your good people are there. And all of a sudden you don't get to see everything. And, and that that's also a skill that good entrepreneurs uh, develop. They understand how to delegate. Uh, they understand how to have confidence in their people and let folks do their jobs. Yeah, you need that second layer, right? Which is amazing. When you're when you're the owner and it's one location, you can walk in at any time and they know that. Once you have a second and a third location, they know, your employees know you can't be there. So you have to have that second layer that has trust. So I thought that was really um, a, a really cool point about, you know, this idea of growth. And he did all this with no restaurant experience, right? We've had a couple people on that jump into these difficult, challenging industries with no experience. And that's where you really have to be a strong leader and bring in people that can teach you and you have to be willing to learn and make mistakes. And he talked about all those things. You know, we had Mark Campo on uh, several months ago who did the same thing with a restaurant in Hanawa Falls that's uh, beloved up a few hours north of uh, where you and uh, Chris are. Um, and it's that same thing. It's getting into something with no experience. Boy, you have to learn fast. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the other thing that impressed me was that uh, – they gets together, I forget what it was, every three months and they review mm -hmm. the menu mm -hmm. and they and they want to change the menu. Mm -hmm. It's not like, okay, we, we, we know we have a good thing, we're just leaving it. We want to be innovative. We want to try new things. We want to give our customers uh, a, a new experience for those people who want a new experience, but we also want to give people who like eating the same thing over and over again, give them that opportunity as well. And the other thing that he talked about there was that it's also good for our staff. It's good for the line cooks. It's good for the chefs, right? Because they get to try out new things. They're not making the same thing over and over and over again for years on end. So I thought that was pretty clever as well. Yeah, this is a great lesson in engaging your employees and getting them to buy in. Because, yeah, you can go and get a new job really easily in this business. It's a very transportable skill set. Uh, and it's very hard to acquire and retain employees that you can trust and that will stay with you and that will go the extra mile for you um, in a business that's often very, um, you know, where can I get, make the most tips kind of thing, right? He's got that loyal workforce that's really critical. And, yeah, by, you know what? empowering them and giving them the opportunity to experiment and try things to teach them, right? How to create a menu, how to cost the menu out um, and giving them the opportunity to, to build things. This is a great HR lesson. Yeah, they might take that skill set and go open a competitor down the street. But in the meantime, you're getting people that, A, they probably won't compete with you directly because you did something for them and they trust you, right? Um, but B, you're going to have those people's um, uh, they're they're going to take your interests into heart as well as their own. 
Uh, and so I think that most of the time an approach like that really works out. You can get burned this way, uh, but I think more often than not it works. And it was great to hear right from Chris's mouth how he's used that model of kind of growing human capital and trusting your employees um, and giving them the power to uh, own part of the business literally, right, or figuratively, right? He did that, and I think that was really cool. Yeah, and I think the other interesting thing is that how he's adapted, uh, uh, adapted, not adopted, adapted, uh, his business in, in that when the whole microbrewery thing sort of kicked off, uh, you went to various different places because that's the only place you could get microbrewed beer was in these little brew pubs. Now you can go to the grocery store and there's a, you know, a, a hundred foot long aisle full of microbrewed beers. And you can go to any restaurant and get a good selection of, of microbrewed beers. Uh, so he figured out and he understands that people may come there the first time or the second time for the beer, but they come back over and over and over again for the food. And it's the food that drives his business. And and the, the beer is just a, sort of a necessity and a branding opportunity to build some loyalty along with the uh, excellent food. Yeah, remember, he didn't even want to open a restaurant at first, right? He was like, I don't want to do food. And he only did food when he realized the economics didn't work of just the beer, right? So right. this was a person whose identity was, I think, started as a brewer. And he was willing to shift his identity um, into really being somebody that's focused on food. Uh, and, you know, that's a hard thing for some entrepreneurs to do, to let go of the original passion and to kind of pivot to saying, no, the focus of this is really on the food. Um, so, and you have to be all things to all people sometimes. So you have to have great beer. If you have crappy beer, people aren't going to come back, but yeah, the, the, the beer is kind of the price of entry and the food is the, the thing that keeps your, gives you your employees, uh, your customers stickiness. So I thought that was a right. great conversation. Yeah. Anything else there we want to bring up? Well, just, uh, that, just that I think knowing your industry and knowing the trends in your industry and knowing what makes you competitive. I don't care if you're a dentist or a house painter or you own a car wash. Um, I think those same lessons learned is understand the trends in your industry, know what kind of the, your unique selling proposition is, and know what it is that consumers are chasing, right? His understanding of how his core customers are aging and what their needs are as they go from single to married to having kids, right? How does he have to tweak what his offering is to both keep his existing customers coming back and to bring in new customers, right, to replace the ones that he loses? And I think that's a really nice small business lesson that I like to teach that it takes me an hour and 15 minutes that he explained in four minutes, <laughs> right? Um, you know, right. that tells you a lot about my teaching, but, but I thought that was, I thought that was great. Um, yeah. So, and I think, and I think this notion of right along with that, Mike is, is measuring what's going on, having the right set of metrics, right? Mm -hmm. So he measures food that sort of doesn't get eaten, that gets left on the plate and, and they sort of measure that. And then as a team, they get together and they say, okay, what's going on here? Do we need to tweak the recipe? Was, was that just a bad night or what's going on? And, and then modifying things based on that. Again, bringing into that picture his employees so that it's a group decision and they're all sort of behind it and, and they, they identify with it. And when, when, when the customer has a poor experience, uh, he reaches out to that customer and 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 tries to make it turn that poor experience into a good one. Yeah, it's critical. Um, so yeah, I think I think his approach to business was a great kind of 
um, class in an hour, right, of how to kind of start and maintain a business in a very tough environment, right? He has a great location. He's got great people. He diluted control. He built partners early, right, in order to make sure he had the right people in place. Uh, he's built a brand. He's grown kind of organically. Uh, he's got a clear focus on what makes his customers come back for more. Um, he's got a system in place to troubleshoot and to continuously improve and to innovate. Um, and he's uh, and I think those are the keys to success in a tough market. I agree, Mike. Let's wrap this one up. Okay. Well, we're happy you joined us for our podcasting adventure this week and our uh, Bela's interview with Chris Martell. Uh, we, uh, we hope you found this interesting and thought provoking as well. As usual, we have a couple of requests. Um, please email us with questions, complaints, suggestions, topics for f- potential guests. Uh, we're happy to do all of that. Spend a couple minutes, email us at bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please do subscribe. Uh, give us a like or a heart or whatever your podcast app does to signify if you do like us. Uh, and uh, if it's uh, not too much trouble and you can spend a second and write a review for us, that would be great. Uh, and of course, the last thing is if you know others that might find us interesting, please share us with them. So thank you uh, for listening this week. Uh, and uh, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, we look forward to having you join us next uh, week for our next episode. So signing off from upstate New York. Hey, Mike, see you next week. That's great, Bela. I'm off to have a schnitzel and a nice cold beer. So from over here in Münster, Germany, have a great week. This podcast is produced for Mike and I by our friends at Busy Media of Schenectady, New York. They can be found at busymedia.co.